Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network This is the Radioactive Show Brought to you this week by Emma Crunch On April 26, 31 years ago, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster occurred and with it a haze of secrecy, toxic legacy and many personal and social wounds. On today's Radioactive Show, I'm going to share with you a recent radio show put together by Adrian Glamorgan for Understory, a Perth-based radio team whose show show airs on RTR FM 92.1. This show was aired first on April 26th this year and commemorates the anniversary of Chernobyl 31 years earlier and it's a sobering reminder to us all of the dangers of all things nuclear. In February 1986, the Ukrainian Minister of Power spoke about the safety of nuclear reactors for electricity. He said, The odds of a meltdown are 1 in 10,000 years. The plants have safe and reliable controls that are protected from any breakdown with three safety systems. But within a few months, his claim for nuclear safety exploded, along with reactor number four at Chernobyl. When the Chernobyl disaster happened 31 years ago today, the nuclear industry explained that it was an anomaly, a Soviet-era disaster, that it couldn't happen again. The reactor was actually only three years old when it ran out of control, and disasters still happened. Last year, I revisited the world's second Class 7 disaster at Fukushima and spoke to community members and citizen scientists who monitor the radiation in that fertile, but now irradiated, part of Honshu. When I heard the stories of community campaigners there, they sounded similar to the experiences of concerned environmentalists I'd heard from in Russia, the Ukraine and Belarus, people affected by far worse fallout there. As you'll hear today on Understory, the Chernobyl catastrophe wrote the rules for how to manage a Class 7 disaster, or rather, how to manage the media and the public in a nuclear disaster. Chernobyl and Fukushima both point to a media strategy where a government will keep silent about the dangers, deny that anything's happened, blackout all reporting, and when the news gets out, as it always will, publicly reassure the wider population, and then simply raise the legal radioactivity exposure levels to make the environment seem safer again. There'll be the alteration of health protocols where necessary, and a refusal to collect a wider range of public health data so there can be no long-term studies. But let's get back to Chernobyl, specifically 31 years ago today. On the 26th of April 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant dramatically malfunctioned during a safety test. A sudden steam explosion and graphite fire, which kept burning for nine days, sent plumes of high-dosage radiation into the Ukrainian and Belarus countryside. The radioactivity was equivalent to 100 times the radiation released from Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. But school children played outside, weddings were held, and May Day marches proceeded only a few kilometres away from this catastrophe. No one knew what was going on, no one outside the Communist Party, 
I asked a long-time environmental campaigner, John Croft, to share some of the stories he'd learned from speaking to Russians affected by the nearby nuclear disaster. And we learned what happened concerning a place in the Bryansk region of Russia. Uh, it's a town called Novozipkov, which means new life. And we heard the story of what happened at Novozipkov. And there were five of us, and we were sitting around a, a fire. And it broke our hearts uh, with a Chernobyl uh, accident. At first, the wind blew towards Sweden, and it was the Swedes who informed the world there'd been a nuclear accident in Russia. The wind turned a second time and blew across the Black Sea towards Turkey. And then the wind turned a third time, and it blew towards Moscow. And the communist government in Moscow at that time panicked because if the radioactivity from Chernobyl arrived in Moscow, which was a city of then of 8 million people, they would have had to evacuate Moscow. And they knew that if they announced that they'd have to evacuate Moscow, uh, it would be the end of communism, and it was impossible to do. So what they did, they sent up the Russian Air Force. And as the radioactivity arrived in the Bryansk region, just over the Ukrainian border, they seeded the clouds with silver iodide and made it rain. And so it rained over the top of Novozipkov. And in order to prevent a mass panic, the Communist Party got in touch with all the Communist Party members in Novozipkov and told them to send their children out to play in the rain. What did people later learn? Well, th those children that were sent to play in the rain are now dead. Uh, from thyroid cancers, from all sorts of medical problems. Um, when we heard about this, we resolved that we were going to uh, bring two people out to Australia from Novozipkov because it was at the height of the Jabaluka mining. They were proposing a uranium mine on Aboriginal sacred land in a World Heritage listed national park in the Northern Territory. And they said that this was possible. And uh, so we thought if we brought these people out from Russia and travelled around Australia, then not only would we learn a lot about what had happened, but perhaps we could have an impact on the development of uranium mines in Australia. And so that's what we did. And for 55 days, Andre Krichtop and Natalia Dikun travelled around, visited all the uranium mines in Australia at that time. What are some of the experiences of Nova Zipkov, the stories you heard that affected you most? Yes, I think it was a lot of things that had a major impact. One was that um, we were working with a, a Russian organisation called Viola, which was working with the, pe the survivors of Nova Zipkov. And what happened was that we went through a stage of raising money for Geiger counters because the radioactivity changes by the wind and the direction and the dust. And so the children going to school have to carry a Geiger counter to show them where the radioactivity is today so that they don't go to that corner. We learned, for instance, that um, a lot of the people tried to escape from Chernobyl, uh, from uh, Novozipkov, and they, they would move to other cities. And they uh, were called Chernobyl hedgehogs and ridiculed, and they met all sorts of of uh, penal penalties and discrimination and and so they a lot of them actually went back to Chernobyl because that was the only place they could find where they'd be accepted 
uh, Andre Krichtop brought us all the stories of the children because he interviewed every child that was in hospital. And the stories were heartbreaking. They really were. You're listening to The Radioactive Show and this week we're sharing with you audio from a Perth radio team called Understory. It's a commemorative show to mark 31 years since the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Let's get back to the conversation between Understory producer Adrian Glamorgan and John Croft. Estimates of health impacts from Chernobyl vary widely, or rather quite extremely, from 64 officially from the International Atomic Energy Agency to, well, even up to a million by Russian scientists. Some scientists estimate about 16,000 excess thyroid cancers, otherwise rarely known, will come from iodine-131 radiation. But it is difficult to establish causation, especially as there was secrecy and contested analysis and a refusal to collect data almost from the beginning. There are wildly different reports about how many fatalities came out of Chernobyl. What's your understanding of the true epidemiology of the radioactive fallout on the lives and public health of Ukraine, Belarus and Russia? The reason why there are conflicting reports is it depends on who is doing the report and what is their financial interest in the report. It is very difficult to point a finger and say that this person died as a result of Chernobyl. If you look at the background rate of fatalities across Russia as a whole, with Chernobyl subtracted, the areas of fallout subtracted, it would seem that the mortality figure is about 30,000 higher than the background rate. Now, it's impossible to say which of those 30,000 died as a result of Chernobyl, obviously. But with 30,000 more deaths than expected, I would say, suggest that it's probably about 30,000. But then the, the nuclear industry doesn't want that widely known, and so they say that there was only about five or six who died directly as a result of the radioactivity. These were the people who sacrificed their lives in order to go into the reactor and help to turn it off or put the lid on. In one incident inside the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, three volunteers used scuba equipment to swim into a dark pool of overheating water, water that was normally used to cool and slow the chain reaction. There was the danger of 200 tonnes of radioactive materials being blown into the air at once. There was even concern that the uranium might go critical and start an uncontrollable chain reaction. The radioactivity was so high, it soon stopped their ordinary torch from working. But the immense radiation endangered their lives. Groping in the terrible dark, they were able to find and then open the valves and release the overheating water. But... As expected, the three divers died from the fatal doses of radiation they received inside the reactor. Anna Ninko, 
Bezpilov and Baranov were heroes. They had to be buried in lead coffins because their bodies were so radioactive. Uh, Andre, if you give him a, an apple, he'd spend 20 minutes washing the apple before he ate it because in Novozipkov you have to do that in order to make sure that you've got all the, the dust off the surface of the apple in case you eat radioactivity. And, and Natalia, we travelled by bus around Australia and each morning she would spend 20 minutes sweeping the, the dust from the bus. She never slept on the ground, she slept in the bus. And when we spoke to her about, you know, why was she doing this, she said, um, she said, I have to do this because I have to do this every day of my life because if I don't, I'm dead. And it was only after we got to Uluru that she managed to sleep on the ground and she was in tears because she said... This is the first time I've been able to trust the earth since the, the event. They always refer to it as the event. That it was as if their life stopped in 1986 and it hasn't resumed since then. So I'd like to tell you about someone remarkable, someone you probably haven't heard of. Yet the story she brings the world is one that needs to be told and which she told at great risk to herself. Ukrainian journalist Ala Yaroshinskaya received the 1992 Right Livelihood Award, that's sometimes known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, for revealing, against official opposition and persecution, the extent of the damaging effects of the Chernobyl disaster on local people. In 1986, Yaroshinskaya first learned of the catastrophe when she tuned into a Stockholm radio station to learn that something not very pleasant had happened at the nuclear power plant close to her. Despite her own newspaper's objections to her going out, Yaroshinskaya investigated the evacuation of people from the Chernobyl zone. She secretly travelled into contaminated areas, discovered that people had been evacuated from areas of high contamination to places barely less radioactive. The evacuees were being given heavily irradiated food. Yaroshinskaya was elected to the Soviet Parliament in 1991, she managed to obtain secret documents of the Communist Party Politburo before they were going to be taken away and destroyed. She discovered that the Politburo ordered at least 10,000 patients in hospitals to be reclassified as healthy and discharged en masse, including 345 people showing obvious signs of radioactive lesions. This was done simply by lifting acceptable levels for members of the public to be exposed to radiation, ten times the previous norms, and sometimes to levels 50 times higher than previously permitted. Doctors were not permitted to write death certificates with radiation-related causes. A decree declared everything was now fine. Yaroshinskaya's record showed that in 1986... The Politburo ordered cattle and pigs to be slaughtered, but arranged them to be hosed down with water, their lymph nodes removed, and then they just added it to non-radioactive meat to produce sausages and canned meat. Ala Yaroshinskaya launched a parliamentary inquiry, and the Soviet Deputy Prosecutor General admitted, From 1986 to 1989, over 47.5 thousand tonnes of contaminated meat and two million tonnes of contaminated milk were produced, thus putting in danger the health of some 75 million people. This led to higher mortality rates as well as to an increase in the number of malignant tumours, deformities, hereditary and somatic diseases. Yaroshinskaya called it 
crime without punishment, and she's pushed for a Chernobyl-Nuremberg trial against the former Soviet authorities for crimes against humanity. Finding out the facts is made more difficult by the workings of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which has a charter that commits the organisation to promote nuclear energy as well as to regulate it. The International Atomic Energy Agency's 1959 agreement with the World Health Organisation has effectively kept the WHO out of research on the health effects of radiation for more than 50 years. This is the Radioactive Show, and this week we're sharing with you audio from Perth Radio Team Understory. You've just heard Adrian Glamorgan sharing the story of Alla Laroshinskaya, a Ukrainian journalist who has worked to expose the hidden shame of the government's cover-up after Chernobyl. We now hear from John Croft reflecting on his learnings about the knowledge of traditional owners here in Australia about uranium. Here on the Radioactive Show, we have often heard firsthand from traditional owners about uranium and its dangers, whether in mining, exporting or waste. John Croft refers to an Alice Springs statement, which is from the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, an Aboriginal-led alliance celebrating its 20th year in 2017. You can find out more about ANFA at anfa.org.au. Discovered as we travelled around Australia, and this was strange because it was something we didn't expect. There is a word for uranium in every Aboriginal language that has a uranium mine site. They knew about this stuff. Uh, the places where the uranium came from, or where the mine has been found, was called sickness country, or punishment country, or poison country. It was known by the Aborigines that if they camped there, they would lose their lives. When the Europeans came and they told them that they wanted to mine the, the uranium, it caused immense confusion amongst the Aboriginal people because they knew that this was danger, a dangerous material. And there's, it's known in Aboriginal culture that if something from my country goes to your country and does damage to you or to your country, I'm responsible. It's known that the radioactivity at Fukushima came from Australia is Australian uranium, and the Aboriginal people know this. And so in some way it has had a negative effect on their culture. There was an Alice Spring declaration that was released by the traditional owners of uranium mine sites in Australia in Alice Springs in 1997. 
that said that the Aboriginal experience with uranium mining has been damaging to all Aboriginal cultures that have experienced the effects. While the Soviet Union was scrambling to pretend and dissemble about Chernobyl, many Western European governments were also careful to filter out safety information about nuclear power. France relied on nuclear power for its domestic electricity as well as its processing for nuclear weapons. It was easy for the French government in those days to manage the news, radio and television. There was no internet. French citizens were given imprecise maps, many assurances about the safety of nuclear power and left with the impression that the radioactive clouds had just bypassed France. Two decades later, a surge in thyroid cancers in France led to 500 complainants charging a French nuclear chief for aggravated deceit under consumer laws. The French agency was using low average findings of radiation across whole regions to conceal pockets of high contamination from Chernobyl that was caused by high rainfall. But 20 years after the event, it was hard to prove thyroid cancer causation. And on that basis, the nuclear chief separately used defamation laws to stop the criticism from continuing. Chernobyl's environmental contamination was severe, affecting at least 2 million people to the north and Ukraine's neighbour, Belarus. Even today, the Belarus government is very sensitive about the whole Chernobyl matter, aggressively attempting to silence human rights and environmental activist groups. Even though the nuclear disaster happened a long time ago now, milk from Belarus cows still measures at high radiation levels. And last year, when a journalist merely cited a state government epidemiological centre report that levels of a radioactive isotope were 10 times higher than the nation's food safety limits, the journalist was promptly taken to court. It's not easy being a journalist reporting Chernobyl in Belarus. So um, the effect that learning about Chernobyl has had on me has been to make me realise and to campaign against the uranium industry like the current Australian, West Australian or previous West Australian government was wanting to open up four mines. The uranium industry, in fact, is dead. It's a living fossil. The demands for uranium have been falling. The prices have fallen out of the bottom. There's very few uranium... Uh, reactors being built. The only places, the only known use for the waste of uranium is building atomic bombs. So North Korea, with its radioactive uh, reactor, is using the radioactive waste to build atomic bombs at the moment. Uh, if you want nuclear proliferation, then build a reactor, because that's the path to do it. You have been listening to audio from Understory, Western Australia's environmental radio show, which plays out on RTR-FM 92.1. And thanks to Understory for sharing their commemorative Chernobyl show with us on the Radioactive Show. And you can find out more of their shows by looking them up. The Radioactive Show is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR Community Radio. We broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast our shows by going to allthews.3cr.org.au and searching under programs. You can also find us on Facebook or get in touch by calling 3CR on 03 9419 The song on today's show was Hearts Are Hungry by Edie Donald and the Transients. I'm Emma, thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. To the
with minus that of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. 